everybody. Uh, welcome to the History Today podcast. I'm Sam Zell. And I'm Katie Spinato. And today we're doing episode two of the Imperialism miniseries that we had. Uh, season finale of season one, per se. Uh, so, we're two days late. Uh, college is starting in the next couple weeks, so we're getting a little hectic and trying to figure out the schedule. We will be pumping out more episodes after this, but we're going to have to kind of jimmy our schedules around and figure it out. But we will be, we will be here. So... Let's get into imperialism, though. Uh, where we left off, we talked about Japan, we talked about uh, <clears throat> the Roman Empire, and we talked about uh, the British Empire. Britain and Ireland. Yep. Yeah. Uh, sorry, that's <laughs> more you more your expertise, so I didn't think about it off the top of my head. Um, so we talked about more of the traditional empires when you hear the word empire. Uh, today, we're going back to our general U.S. focus uh, for an episode. And we're just going to talk about how the U.S. has engaged in imperialism pretty much since you know the beginning of its uh, this beginning of its appearance on the world stage, and how basically with two terms, which are used very you know used for a bunch of different ways, a bunch of different definitions. With these two terms, the U.S. has made excuses over and over and over again to colonize and imperialize. So <clears throat> the first of the two terms, both of these coming from the 1800s, uh, is manifest destiny. And manifest destiny is this idea that the colonists that landed in the East had the God-given right to just keep taking the land in the continent. So they pushed it all the way to the west, all the way to the Pacific, getting to California. They fought Mexico in the middle of the 1800s, and they got their land. They fought the Native Americans, obviously, and pushed them, pushed them west, trail of tears. Uh, and Manifest Destiny, while it was declared dead in 1890, is very much still ingrained in American culture and in the American attitude. So do you want to talk about it a little bit? Um, yeah, so I think that one thing that's very interesting about Manifest Destiny is that it has shaped the course of our country so much. It is probably one of the biggest things that has um, shaped the way that our country looks today geographically. Um, but something that's really important to note, and I think a distinction that often is missed in history classes is the distinction between um you know colonizers and immigrants i think that when you're talking about people who first arrived in the americas there's at least i think if you have family that you know came to america they first arrived here you know you often use the word you know my family was um were immigrants they came to america but I think that's something that's important to mention is that a lot of people who first arrived in the Americas were actually colonizers. Um, and that's important to note because it fueled the desire to continue to move west. Um, and as we are talking about Manifest Destiny, because as, as we started obtaining more land and as we got further into conflict with Native Americans and we pushed them into very small reservations, essentially what happened is they 
used religion, which was also a justification for Manifest Destiny, um, to assimilate Native Americans into white culture. And so basically what you see is a push for Natives to practice Christianity, and you see the loss of language within um, Native communities. And I think it's important to mention Manifest Destiny because it's not something that is you would think of as tangible imperialism because it's within the same country. However, you are dealing with two different groups of people. Um, Native Americans are not, they were not considered a part of the United States. And even though they lived there, which is so mind-blowing to me, they lived there before, you know, the colonists arrived. And essentially, it's important to talk about because it's, it goes back to what we were talking about last week with imperialism being ideology ide, ideology and that is most prominently expressed in manifest destiny and the relationship between native americans and white colonists So the other uh, the other term that we're going to talk about is um, <clears throat> coined by Rudyard Kipling in his book about um, the U.S. Philippine relations at the end at the turn of the nineteenth turn of the when you say turn of the century is it talking about the new century or the old century? Sorry, just going on a tangent here for a second. I think of it as I guess it was the turn of the twentieth century because it was going into the twentieth century, right? I always look at it as though when you're saying turn of the century, you're entering a new era okay. or a new like marking point in history. That's always what I think of. Okay, so yeah, so Rudyard Kipling uh, coined this phrase in 1899, which would be the turn of the 20th century, I guess, um, <clears throat> when talking about the Filipino-U.S. Uh, relations. And um, the term is the white man's burden. And the white man's burden has been used kind of as a blanket statement for any justification uh, that any either American or European, because they're all kind of in the same boat, uh, country uses in when they go and they say, we're going to help these people, but really they're just, you know, self-interest and it's imperialism because they're, even if they're, I think, you know, Katie, you brought up a really good point when we were prepping this. Uh, it's not even about like, are they taking land? It's, are they, as you said, you know, taking away the language? Are they, you know, making people assimilate? Are they taking the culture away? Are they appropriating the culture? Because obviously that is a big deal in the U.S. right now with, you know, the fine line between cultural, cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation. And we do a lot of both. <laughs> um, but the white man's burden is pretty much this idea that we... You know, we're we're trying to, or at least in the U.S. perspective, the white man's burden. It's that we're trying to help the little guy, and in order to help the little guy, we're, we might have to do some things that could be referred to as oppressive. But as long as we're we're intending to help the little guy, at least as we say, it's okay. And I think nothing really describes America's use of the white man's burden better than the Spanish-American War. Yeah, I would agree. I think that we, in the Spanish-American War, we got, through the Treaty of Paris, we got Puerto Rico and we got Guam from Spain. And through that, 
um, through that treaty, Cuba got, quote, independence from Spain, and they had that for three years. And then after that time period, the Platt Amendment was passed, and it took that independence away. And it essentially protect it essentially stated that the U.S. was there to protect Cuba, but there was underlying language within the amendment that said that the U.S. could essentially control them at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so, and the, 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 that language came through when it was given to the U.S. that they could intervene in Cuban affairs whenever they wanted. And throughout you know, the years we have used Cuban land for military bases. I know, Sam, you were talking about that before. So if you want to elaborate on that, you definitely can. But I think that it's important to note because we used the Spanish-American War to say that we were protecting other countries from Spain, when in reality we had very underlying reasons that were not related to the protection of those countries they were actually used for some sort of gain whether it be land for a military base or whatever else it could be but yeah i think uh even the even like the the u.s leaders at the time i think it was mckinley uh, <clears throat> even they knew that the white man's burden wasn't really, or it, obviously the term hadn't been coined yet. Uh, even they knew that the, you know, the, the excuse wasn't good because they had to come up with their own really stupid excuse. Now, um, let's give some backstory on the Spanish-American War because I realize we haven't really explained it very much. But basically, uh, Spain was a very, we've mentioned in podcasts before, Spain was a very oppressive uh, colonizer. And they took a lot of South America, they took a lot of Central America, they took um, parts of, you know, Florida was part of Spain. Um, <clears throat> but Spain at this point was w getting weaker and the U.S. was on the rise, where the U.S. was, you know, starting to industrialize, starting to make a name for themselves about a hundred years out from existing. And um, they definitely wanted to take some land because they were, you know, an anglicized culture. Obviously, you know, the British are pretty good at taking other people's land. So why can't the Americans? And the, you know, the white man's burden here doesn't really cut it. They can't just say Spain is, is in control of Cuba. We want to free them. And yes, they used that. But the real example, the, the real excuse they used to get into the Spanish-American War was the Maine, the USS Maine, which was a ship that blew up, and there's really no evidence that Spain blew it up. Uh, obviously, it was the 1890s. There is, you know, there's they don't have CCTV. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of things you could use today to figure out who blew up a ship that you know you can't really use in the 1890s, and Yes, this happens. It, it happened. It wasn't like they made it up completely, but of course, they see this. They see their opportunity. Okay, now we have our just our justification for starting this war. So, yeah, in the long run, you do see them. You know, we need to help the Cuban people. Uh, obviously, that really comes in when, as you mentioned, the Platt Amendment, where they're like, we need to protect the Cuban people. So, when to protect them. 
obviously what we need to be able to do is intervene in their affairs whenever we want. And they made sure this was unilateral, so the Cubans could not interfere in American affairs, but we can interfere in Cuban affairs. And that is, remember, for their freedom and independence. Um, and the other thing, of course, was that we got some of the Cuban land for military bases, which just straight up is imperialism. We are taking land from them for American purposes. And as you mentioned, I wanted to go into uh, the military bases a little bit. Uh, one of those is Guantanamo Bay, and uh, obviously that's kind of a hot-button issue that we've all heard about in the last 10 years. Um, so that's a, that's a thing that we took, in, you know, we took that kind of land. In 1903, Cuba became independent of the Platt Amendment in the 60s uh, with Castro, and even after Castro, we still had that land. <laughs> like we had that land up into the you know the Obama administration, we still have it. We just you know are not torturing people anymore. Uh, but um, but yeah, that that just straight up is imperialism. We annexed land from Cuba. We took it in the name of protecting them and keeping their independence. Which the more I say, the more stupid it sounds. Uh, so uh so yeah um but cuba obviously wasn't the only uh the only acquisition after the spanish-american war which um <clears throat> it was the indirect one where we kind of just you know because they were close to us then we were like oh yeah we can colonize but um we directly got puerto rico and the philippines and there's no real explaining away any kind of, oh, we're giving them independence because there, there, there was no, you know, Cuba had three years of actual independence. Philippines and Guam and Puerto Rico all just, you know, changed hands. Obviously, uh, Puerto Rico is still, you know, <clears throat> still part of the U.S., still a colony. Its status hasn't changed since 1898. Philippines is its own thing. Guam is still a colony. So these these imperial decisions that were made literally two centuries ago uh, are still, you know, a big part of many people's lives that live in those territories as they, you know, are still under American control. Yeah, something about Puerto Rico that I think is very, it's a very interesting trend, but it definitely is a trend, is people who visit Puerto Rico, they, it is a still hot tourist place for people in the United States, but there's a lot of controversy around visiting Puerto Rico because tourism to Puerto Rico attracts people to that area, but the economy in Puerto Rico is crippling. And so there, you see this, I guess, a line between privilege and oppression because you have people who are going there to enjoy the the area, but at the same time, the people who inhabit the area themselves are struggling with a you know crippling economy. There's not equal access to resources. There's not you know clean water all of the time, and so that kind of line that's drawn within you know Puerto Rico because of that distinction between tourism and the people who actually inhabit the area. It's very, it's very telling, I think, of what's happening in modern times right now because there are many, you know, people who think that 
you know, Puerto Rico is, you know, a lesser than area, but it's, it's not because it's, it's our fault. It's not, it's not the people who live in that country. It's or, or that, um, you know, colony area. It's because of us. It's because of the way that we have held tightly onto areas like Puerto Rico and, and Guam. Mm. So I always think that it, it almost shouldn't even be an argument because we're the ones who have enabled it to happen. And it, it's a shame that it's a debate and people look down on Puerto Rico like that, or they look down on other areas that we've obtained because we could easily fix the issue by giving them recognition and giving them independence. Um, but I won't get, that's very opinionated. I won't get more into that, but yeah. I also think it's, it's interesting to like, maybe, you know, giving them independence is obviously an option that would work very well, but I also think that, um, or that could work very well. I'm not an expert on Puerto Rico, so I don't want to say stuff that I might, you know, might not be correct on. But it's also interesting to look at the fact that <clears throat> not two years after the 1898 Treaty of Paris, which, of course, we were talking about this earlier, it seems like Versailles has every important treaty signed in it ever. But um, the 1898 Treaty of Paris, which is where the Spanish-American War ended, don't ask us why France was involved. Um, <clears throat> but in 1900, two years later, Hawaii became a territory of the U.S. And I think this is a very similar situation where, you know, this is, this is white imperialism. Just, just you know, it, it, there's no other way to say it. Hawaii was a, uh, it was a territory with indigenous people running it, and it was a kingdom. And then it was taken over, and it was created as the Republic of Hawaii. It was taken over by white businessmen, and then sold to the U.S. as a territory. Now, this is, you know, obviously it seems like this decade and these couple of decades at the beginning of the 20th century were the U.S.'s real foray into taking other people's land. But, um, I mean, not to say that they hadn't taken other people's land before, but taking taking land that not many people think of as the continent, that isn't in the continental U.S. They already had taken that. But <laughs> um, Hawaii became a territory in 1900 and eventually became a state in 1959. And we, we absolutely stole that land. It was it was taken over. The queen was imprisoned by the colonists, and then they sold it to the U.S. because the U.S. was this big power that could, even though Hawaii is nowhere near us. Um, so you know, Cuba obviously they used the example that it's ninety miles away. Can't use that for Hawaii. But uh, yep. So they assimilated that. They you know going back to what you said, imperialism isn't just about land. Uh, we assimilated their culture. We made them more American, and then eventually we let them be a state. Which that's cool. We can you know we can definitely say that it's it's good that Hawaii is a state. It's good that they have voting rights and they have representation in the country. But also, why do they have to be American? It's like you know, no problem with them being American, but they also were their own people with their own government and their own culture. So mm -hmm. 
again with you know Puerto Rico and Hawaii and Guam and the Philippines you just go into a totally non you know non-hostile passive culture that's just you know living their lives and saying oh yeah we can make that part of the US <laughs> which doesn't make much sense to me Right. And I think also making that connection back to tourism, Hawaii is a place that a lot of people go exactly. um, travel to for vacation spots. And I think that I'm not saying that the that tourism is the cause of assimilation of culture, because there is a lot of causes of assimilation of culture that is not related to tourism. However, I think that heavy tourism in those areas forces assimilation, not in the sense that anyone's necessarily like, I'm not saying tourists are going and saying like, be like us, but it's hard to maintain um, autonomy over your culture when, when people of a more, and this isn't even true, but it's the language people use, people of a more quote, dominant culture come in and are frequently visiting. It's hard to maintain that, that status as an independent culture. And I mean, it's it's very interesting because the same thing happened to indigenous peoples in America, but it wasn't because of tourism. It was because the United States literally went around, like Native Americans were immersed in white culture so much that they had no other choice. Um, so that, those are two very different cases. Because of manifest destiny, right? So it's all it's all connected. But I think that it's very interesting to view tourism as a leading, not necessarily a leading cause, but a very prominent cause of yeah. assimilation of culture. And I definitely think just like the more the world quote unquote globalizes, the more of a push there is to just kind of make English such a universal language. And I, yes. know, I know Mandarin is also, you know, you know, widely spoken, but also the fact that you can go to pretty much any country and read English on a sign, it's, you know, yeah, it's also for the businesses that are there, but also it's very largely for tourism. You know, we expect that there are English-speaking tourists all over the place in the world. So if you go to, you know, I went to go see family in Italy a couple of years ago, and all the signs say, you know, the Italian and then the English. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting because it's not necessarily a it's not imperialism in the traditional sense of the word but it's it's an issue that a lot of people or a lot of countries have faced you know whether it be ireland and their desire to preserve the um, gallic language or it be another good example of language and in relation to um you know assimilation is in um quebec the people of Quebec want the signs to have the larger font in the French language and the English words in the smaller font because they want to maintain the they want to maintain the French language in that area. And so they want the language that they primarily want to see used in that area in a bigger font on signs. It's just little things like that that you just don't usually think about or don't think about as often. But then when you collect it and you're talking about it in this setting, it's like, wow, like there's an expectation. Yeah. Like, 
any any student in Europe or in other countries are expected to know English in addition to their their native language. But in the but United we, States, we just learn. Yeah, we just learn English, and we're like it would be nice to learn a second second language. But people aren't driven to do that because it's the expectation that we can go okay. to other countries and they will speak to us in English. And so there's quote, not a need, even though I do think it would be nice to, for people to embrace learning different languages, but we just went on a tangent here. I just yeah. To continue the tangent for one more thing. I think Quebec is a really interesting thing that you brought up because we, you know, you used it as an example that, you know, the English language is, is infiltrating their culture. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really interesting how, yeah, the English language is like, you know, that they, they really want to preserve the French language being spoken in that region when the French language that's there itself is also originally a result of imperialism. So yes. you have multiple layers of, okay, Europe is going to colonize this area. By the way, sorry um, for listeners if my voice is getting weirdly fluctuated. I'm spinning in my chair and talking, so if it doesn't sound as even uh i'm gonna try to be more stable but i think it's really interesting how you know <clears throat> europe has been colonizing for so many centuries that we now have we now have come to a point where it has created separate cultures in the world and then has come back and re-indoctrinated them into a new european culture <laughs> uh which i think is just like you know it's bad when you have to re-imperialize after you already created a different assimilated culture. Yeah. Yeah, I think to segue out of that tangent, it's a great tangent to have because I know a lot of people don't usually think about it. Um, and that's what we're here to do, talk about things that people don't usually think about. Um, or at least, that's a, that, at least that's what we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel good. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's at least what we, that's the goal we want. We don't know if it's happening, but we hope it's happening. Yeah. Um, but I think that one common thread in modern America is that whenever the United States gets into conflict, or not conflicts with other countries, but they get into the affairs of other countries, we we usually justify it with one good example is when Woodrow Wilson during World War I said that um, the world must be safe for democracy. We must make sure that you know, the world is not falling to other ideologies. That's a very prominent example. Um, following- Which World by the War way, II, he said, he said like right after the Russian revolution. Like I think that's also important because yes. that sets the stage. Yes, so, and that is, you see that mimicked as well after World War II, when we entered the Cold War, we stressed a lot about the domino theory and, you know, protecting other countries, protecting, again, here's the word that we've been talking about throughout this episode, mm -hmm. um, quote, protecting other countries from, you know, things like communism. And so we would get involved in other countries when they didn't necessarily want our involvement. And I think that there that that usually leads to conflict because the United States doesn't know 
And I don't know, there are many different reasons why the United States doesn't know. Maybe it ties into the aspect that we expect other people to, you know, follow the English language and, you know, assimilate to us. But when we insert ourselves into other countries' affairs, we don't know their culture and how they're going to react to that. And so that leads to more conflict. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's just a trend that we're seeing through modern history right now. Um, you know, whether it be through the Cold War or whether it be through, you know, our our involvement in the Middle East and how that's two, you know, multi-faceted um, purposes. I, I don't know. I just think it's interesting because it's, it's again, that covert, not tangible imperialism, but it's that ide ideological um, imperialism that we've seen and it just leads to conflict because if you don't have a knowledge of a country's culture, you're bound to run into tension. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know what you think about that. If you have anything uh, that might've been another rant. But... No, no, no. That's, that's very on point in my opinion. But I think that the, you know, the 20th century is really when that like came into fruition. I think after, you know, you mentioned Woodrow Wilson, I think after that, it seems like, you know, even now with, you know, the war we were born into with, well, not born into because 9-11 was after we were born, but the war we were basically introduced to as we grew up, um, <clears throat> I've seen people use the term the forever war because we're still fighting, but um, just these, all these justifications of we need to help the people, you know, the people of Kuwait, we need to help the people of Kuwait because they have oil, but uh, <laughs> we need to help the people of Iraq because... We don't like their leader. Obviously, not a very obviously not a nice guy. But again, they have oil. Uh, <laughs> you know, we need to. You know, Iran is a great example of how. You know, we talked about it. A little, I think, did we talk about it last week? I think we talked about it, right? We did. Yes, yeah. we talked where, about the coup in Iran and what happened and all of that. Right, where Iran was the. You know, we had this country that they were like, okay, yeah, they have an oppressive, an oppressive, an oppressive ruler, the Shah. They didn't like him. They brought in their own guy. Oh, yeah, we don't like that guy. We're going to bring the Shah back. And then, big shocker, they don't like him again. They kick him out. We support him because he's giving us oil. And then we're, you know, in the situation with Iran that we're in today where they really don't like us. Um, that was yeah, the simplified version of our history in the last hundred years with Iran. But basically, they, they just don't like us for good reason and like they don't know it's for very good reason because i keep when you when you were talking about all of this i was just thinking in my head well who asked for this quote help no. like, who asked for us to come in and you know quote fix the issues issues they're not it's us viewing other countries and saying that they have issues in their country again might not be like actual just because we think they're issues they might not be you know, issues to the other people. And one example being, you know, they thought that the United States thought that Mossadegh wasn't a good leader for Iran, um, for Iran. But the only reason that they didn't like Mossadegh was because he supported the the ownership of oil in Iran. Like they, he didn't want to keep selling oil and making it so that they didn't have control over the commodity that's you know present in their country. Oh my so God, the people he's, of Iran he's really autonomy like, for his country. <laughs> 
Yeah, right? Like, no, like that may, it makes a lot of sense. The people loved Mossadegh in Iran. And then for the United States to come in and say, well, we don't we don't like Mossadegh, so we're going to put in a leader that we know you don't like him. Well, who asked for who asked for our opinion? Like, we don't live in Iran. Like, and and this might be super, super opinionated. So I apologize. But it's a political it's, show. It's you can't. juggling. <laughs> Like we, like, like we could have avoided all of this conflict if we had just stayed out of it. I don't know. It just brings me back to what George Washington said in his farewell address about you know not getting too wrapped up in international affairs. And I mean, with with the global with the globalization of the world, it's hard to not be so interconnected. So I mean, I guess there is something to say about. You know, we can't be too isolated because we do have, you know, trade and all of that. But just because you trade with other countries doesn't mean that you need to impose yourself in their in their everyday lives and culture. Um, but that's history, I guess. And also, it's, it's very it's very telling that we pick our battles like we trade with China. But like, are we doing anything about the Uyghurs? No. Why? Because they don't right. have anything to give us. <laughs> right. You know, if we if, if we intervene against the Uyghurs. Uh, no, against China to help the Uyghurs. Sorry. Uh, actually, in all honesty, I wouldn't be surprised if Trump somehow finds a way to intervene against the Uyghurs. But <laughs> if we intervene in that whole scenario, uh, the current government that we have views that as a net negative, where, oh, we're going to lose China as a trading partner. So, you know, obviously... It really does show that, like, you know, the, the, the motivations for helping the little guy only works when there's also a justification of, yeah, we can make this good for the, for the U.S. We can, we can make this a, you know, a win-win. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, like, I think, you know, Vietnam's a great example, where Vietnam, I think a lot of Americans in the middle of the 20th century did actually believe that communism was this evil empire, evil, you know, force that was taking over the planet. And, you know, believe what you will, we're not, we're not going to go into the economics of communism on this show, but, or not this episode at least, but the, the idea of containment was, was, was the, the, the bullshit justification that they had. And obviously the idea, but but it also was kind of the real justification because it's what it's what the U.S. wanted, but not for the people's sake. Where Ho Chi Minh, Ho Chi Minh was just trying to you know run his country in a certain run you know the the new version of Vietnam in a certain way or North Vietnam at the time, uh, and the U.S. didn't like that because of the containment thing, but also you know they they spread the propaganda of this is for the people of Vietnam, which really it's not because what they really were containing was Russian influence. They weren't containing communism. They were containing the idea that they didn't want Russia, who was also very much an imperial power in the 20th century. Like, you know, if we're going to talk about the U S being an imperialist power, you know, Russia was the other one. Uh, and all that was, was a power game. And that's, you know, when where the term proxy war comes into play, you know you see that in in Korea years before, uh, Korean War didn't end until what a year ago, technically. Because Kim Jong Un like shoveled some dirt. 
<laughs> I, I honestly, not my area of expertise. I think well, you I remember, more about that than I me. remember a few years ago, there were some videos of Kim Jong-un shoveling dirt with Jay and Moon of uh, South Korea, and that was like the end of the Korean War. But that didn't end until the Trump administration, uh, not to give him any credit. But um, proxy wars were just the name of the U.S. game in the 20th century. And I, I took the stat down because it's just mind-blowing to me. Uh, <clears throat> these are only a few countries because there were more, but Guatemala, Cuba, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Nicaragua, and Panama all had U.S. helped regime changes, uh, that were all debatably only because the U.S. just wanted the leader out. And it's really not debatably, let's be honest. Um, banana republics were, uh, you know, a popular term where, you know, the U.S. wanted to get bananas from South America, so they would set up this land, they basically set up a leader in South America that would give them, uh, have you ever heard of the United United Fruit Company? Uh, the United Fruit mm -hmm. Company was basically just taking all of the resources from these countries in uh, Central America and uh, <clears throat> bringing it back and making it just an American profit. And I think a great, a great example of how corrupt the United Fruit Company was and just how influential it was in shaping the American imperialism and our neighbors to the south is, have you ever heard of the name Dulles? Yes. Yeah, so Dulles, uh, you're probably thinking of the, there's an airport in Washington, D.C. And yep. there, there were two, there were two Dulles brothers and it was Alan and John? Okay, not 100% sure. Let me look it up. Uh, but I believe it was Alan and John. John Dulles is this guy. Come on. Yeah. Okay. Alan Welsh Alan Welsh Dulles and John Foster Dulles. And these guys became incredibly powerful. One ran the CIA or the FBI. Oh, this is a little embarrassing. Let me see. Um, John Foster Dulles was the Secretary of State, and his brother was. Give me a second. Yeah, okay, his brother was the CIA director, so I was right. Uh, so, you now have the Secretary of State and the CIA director over, you know, they, they're really doing the, the major work here in overthrowing these leaders for, you know, the purposes of, oh, they might be communists. Obviously, none of them really were. They were just, as you said with Mosaddegh, really just wanting to help their countries. Uh, but of course, the minute you try to help your country and you're not trying to help the U.S., then the U.S. has to step in. And these two were, were, were driving forces for stepping in. And the reason that I brought this up is because if you look at the Dulles' resume, both of them were lawyers for the United Fruit Company before they started working for the U.S. government. So, there you go. That's, that's the corruption of the, of the mid... That's my little story of the corruption of the mid... 20th century for U.S. imperialism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's just crazy. The 20th century is a crazy time for the United States, and it just shaped the course of our country so much. And I think going going back to Vietnam, 
I, I don't want to get too, too much into it, but something that I think is very important to note with Vietnam was the Vietnam War lasted so long that the people of the United States forgot what, what the soldiers were going there to fight for. And I think that once it reaches a point where you don't know what you're fighting for anymore, it, it's just concerning. And I think that it not like invalidates, but it kind of does. It kind of invalidates like what you're, what you're doing, because if you don't, know what you're fighting for why are you fighting for it i don't know i think it's very interesting oh yeah no you go i was done i think that actually goes back to a more traditional imperialist value and i was thinking about this earlier but this is a good place to put it where the idea of the vietnam war dragging on forever because we just needed a win is is such a roman thing it's such a you know Mm -hmm. we're gonna send our army into a little place and because we're the Roman army, we are going to win. And if they ever lost, they wouldn't talk about it. They would just go back and they would crush it harder. And I think that is the ultimate, that's the, that's the ultimate imperialist mindset of we don't lose. We are the empire. You know, yeah, we're going to lose some skirmishes every once in a while. But if you dare to beat us, you know, a little bit, we are going to crush you. You know, I think the uh, I'm obviously just gonna pull this out of my pull this out of a hat here. This is just very off topic, but you know, the, the Roman Empire trying to put down uh, the Jews in Palestine in 130 AD. Uh, actually, it was there was one of the rebellions. You know, the Jews started winning battles, and then the Roman Empire got serious and crushed crushed the resistance. And I think that's kind of what. The, what the U.S. was trying to do. They, it, it, was, it wasn't about... It definitely, you know, you say that they didn't know what they were fighting for. It's definitely because I think it shifted. I think it started out as a proxy yes. war, a la Korea, like any, like really any of the South American ones. And then it became, holy shit, we're not winning this. We just need to save face. And the only, the only reason you would need to save face when you're trying to help someone is if you're trying to preserve the honor of, quote-unquote, the Empire. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, if they were just trying to help, they would just pull out. Oh, no, I definitely agree. I think that it's very interesting because... I Now that, like, we're thinking about it, and I guess this is, like, a nice way to, like, kind of tie the first episode to the second episode... Mm -hmm. We started the first episode of imperialism by talking about the more traditional empires. And in a sense, like that, that was good. And I think that we needed to do that. But I think that in its own way, the United States is an empire, but it's not the same type of empire as what we were talking about in the first couple or the first um, imperialism episode. I think that we're more so an ideology powerhouse and we use that to kind of push a lot of our agendas and so it's not thought of as an empire because we are just seen as oh we are preserving we tell ourselves we are preserving democracy for the world or we are preserving our economy so it's okay that we do this so I think that our justifications for pushing our ideology on other countries and you know involving ourselves in their affairs it's very empire like but because it's not directly 
hands-on and it's not clear like Roman imperialism or it's not like that clear, clear cut, we're stealing your land, you know, not all of the time. Because it's more ideology focused, people don't usually think of the United States as an empire. Mm -hmm. And but but it's an imperialism powerhouse. Yeah. It, it is. And going back to what you said about Russia in the 20th century, also being an imperialism powerhouse, the Cold War was essentially a fight. Imperialism, yeah. which is, yeah, I don't know. That's, it's just very mind blowing. I've never thought of the Cold War as a as a fight of imperialism. But that's what it is, and that's why proxy wars happen. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't think he really intended it this way. But, I mean, you know, we can go to our old buddy Ronald Reagan here. And he referred to Russia as the evil empire. <laughs> and, you know, it can't be, you know, the evil empire is kind of implying that we are the good empire, which I guess would be the stance that a lot of Americans take. Um, obviously, I think Reagan was kind of challenging Yeah was kind of channeling Star Wars as Star Wars had just come out and he called his space defense program Star Wars. But <laughs> I think, you know, it's it's weirdly accurate how the evil empire, which is the words that he chose, are actually really, you know, fitting. Yeah. Well I think I think this episode was good. I think that we've gotten like a groove for this episode and i think that the first episode was us trying to like set the stage mm -hmm. well this that's one was what just we were trying to do with like that. a part one part two this was like the this was the harry potter uh seven part two to the harry potter seven part one of last week uh, <laughs> that was a very i i haven't read harry potter so i don't i don't never read harry potter reference. wow i have not yeah <laughs> Maybe that's what I got to do for the rest of this quarantine. Yeah, we should make a we should make a Harry Potter podcast. Harry podcast. No. There you go. You just coined it for for our audience. Harry podcast. Yeah, uh, I love it. Maybe that'll be like a maybe that'll be like a uh, kind of like a bonus thing. It's like if if you decide to read it, we'll do some like first take Harry Potter, like first thoughts on every book we'll like put that in at the end or something but yeah at the end right. of our history in today podcast <laughs> history of today at yeah. harry potter um that's one way to get people to listen but uh yeah so yeah we hope you enjoyed this episode um we're gonna be back uh at a at a soon at a soon time uh i'm not really sure exactly when we're gonna be back because as i said earlier we're gonna be figuring out our schedules um and figuring out what we want to do with quote unquote season two uh but yeah i really enjoyed this episode i hope you guys liked it as much as we did making it um hope you guys have a great next week couple of weeks however long it takes to make the next one but yeah hope you're all doing great we'll be back soon see y'all